0: Well, good morning. I know it's, uh, it's, I think it's bright and shiny out right now, but if you got up any time ago, you may have noticed the clouds and the rain and thought, oh, this is Sunday, it's, it's not nice outside, so Kent must be teaching. Uh, and I just want to say, thank you for not sleeping in. I really appreciate that. Uh, so with a day that started a little gloomy, why don't we start our message today with something really cheery? How about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Okay? Now be honest. Be honest. Do you sometimes think like I have, you associate that phrase with judgment? Perhaps harsh judgment? I mean, the perfect picture in my mind is the one that we all should be familiar with up in the Capitol building. And if you go there, you'll see a mural with a guy with his hands outstretched, John Brown, you know, the rabid abolitionist, with a Bible in one hand and a rifle in the other and this crazed look in his eye, right? That's That's what comes to my mind when I hear that phrase. Let's take it down to a little lower level, okay? Think about a couple of toddlers on the carpet with toys all around, and they're playing with them. And then, I know you've never seen this with your kids, one reaches out and rips the toy away from the other. Now, in our household, we've seen one or both of two responses. One, of course, would be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, but the other would be to slug the offender, right? Is that a natural response? Yeah? Is that a sinful response? Yeah? Now, do you and I as mature adults do we have the same tendency to want to strike back when somebody hurts us? You know, it is this tendency from the fall our sin nature that permeates the heart of all men, all people. And that the, both the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, and the teachings of Jesus address. Today, we're going to talk about a passage that has confused the church for a long, long time. Uh, in fact, there are divisions within the church, even denominations, that have been set up primarily based upon this passage. Uh, Harder for me is the knowledge that in this audience here, some of you have come out of those church traditions which I am going to say today have been misinterpreted. Okay? Uh, And I want to say at the same time, I've known a lot of these people from the peace churches, and I highly respect the way that they live their lives. But you and I have to take the Word of God as it is given to us, wherever it leads. And that's what we're going to try to do today. We're going to talk today about what our passage does not say. And there's so much here. This is going to be a two-part thing on the same passage. Lord willing, next month, we'll talk about what this passage does say to believers in Christ. Uh, let's dig in. Remember the context here as we've been going over the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is correcting the misinterpretation of the scribes and the Pharisees. We've got a whole series of you have heard, whether it's lust or anger or marriage or a lot of different issues, and then but I say unto you, where he corrects their understanding. Let's start here at Matthew 5, verse 38. I think this should be on your sheet. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, when people talk about the Sermon on the Mount, they often think of this passage because they've never been able to figure it out. Uh, and we, I'm sure you have scratched your head about what does this mean? So many times we tend to kind of gloss over it. We know that Jesus said this, but we don't know how to apply it in our lives. Uh, Some may be tempted to actually mentally check out at this point, now that you've heard the passage, because you don't really think it's applicable to you. Uh, But let me just say that nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, This indifference, if you will, to this this passage is a consequence of incorrect understanding, uh, misinterpretation, a wrong focus that takes us off course. This passage has universal application to every believer in Christ. We're going to start today with what's, what's the subject? The Old Testament meaning and purpose. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is known among some as the lex talionis." okay? That's Latin, lex for law. Talionis means a retaliation authorized by law in which the punishment. Corresponds in kind and degree to the injury. Okay? Exact retribution or retaliation has two purposes. First, it precisely defines justice and a remedy for a wrong. And secondly, it restrains the excess of revenge. So, an example. If I poke your eye out, you don't get to take off both my legs. If you pull my tooth out, I don't get to pull out your eyeball make sense Uh, for justice to be served it must never become excessive the punishments must be commensurate to or it must fit the crime it was not as many suppose Moses intent to require an eye or a tooth regardless of circumstances regardless of what's happened in every single case instead The intention of the law was to give the judges a limitation so that the the punishment fit the crime and not with the excess of revenge. There's a debate in the uh, legal community, probably has been for a long, long time, about a couple of different concepts of justice. One would be called retributive justice, where people say it's the intent of the law to punish the wrongdoer and create a disincentive, okay? So we scare people away. On the other hand, there's people who say, no, 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 justice should be used to reform, to rehabilitate, to restore the offender so that they don't do it again, okay? Well, let's take an example, the classic. Little Johnny or Sue, let's be inclusive here, steals the cookie out of the cookie jar, okay? And they've been told, don't do that. If the only thing that happens is they get a whop on the rear, they might figure, okay, if I want to do this again, i got to be more sneaky, right? However, if the only thing that happens is a lecture about not stealing cookies again, they may think, you know, It was worth it. I'll do it again. However, if they have appropriate correction and they are told about the necessary connection between God's holiness, moral right and wrong, versus sin, you've got a much better chance of influencing their behavior. So some Christians have equated the Old Testament with retribution, and the New Testament with restoration. You see the two concepts, okay? I think that's a false dichotomy. I do not believe that God got justice wrong in the Old Testament and then corrected it in the New. People got justice wrong in the Old and the New Testament, and that's exactly what Jesus is addressing here. They are uh, retribution- and restoration are both facets of biblical justice they are two sides of the same coin all this as a result of our sin nature that tempts people to retaliate usually too much but in our sensitive culture an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth sounds judgmental when it actually It's essential to maintain order, avoid unjust punishment within our system of justice. Okay, let's talk about the scope here of the application. In Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 19, uh, those passages both address the lex talionis, uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and it's further explained, and it is clear that the instruction is not to individuals but to the judges of Israel. And these are the folks who are responsible for law in order to maintain amongst the individuals. The purpose of the lex talionis was to avoid the tendency of people to take law into their own hands with a spirit of revenge, which easily spirals out of control into chaos for each side taking escalating revenge upon the other. Back and forth. Old-timers here will remember the Hatfields and the McCoys. Anybody? Okay, good, good. There's a few of you. A more modern example, frankly, would be Shiites and Sunnis. Am I connecting here? All right. Now, of course, we are all horrified by the brutalities of ISIS, the Islamic State, that we read and hear about videos or Internet stuff and all that. Very sophisticated brutality. Uh, and and they've, they've exercised that brutality against Christians, Jews, and other Muslims. Uh, and as I understand, uh, and Larry can correct me if I'm wrong here, ISIS is a Sunni sect. Okay? That's, that's their foundation. More recently, it has come to light that some of the Iraqi army trained by the United States to fight against ISIS, which is largely a Shiite group, have committed some of the same atrocities against their Sunni captives. Now, I know that there are peaceful Muslims, but just as certain as that fact is the fact that the bloodlust between the Muslims in their jihad against one another, is motivated by their faith. I know how frustrating it is when our president will not link those 2 We'll not call it what it is. And I know how frustrated we were when he called out Christians for their abuses not too long ago. But we got to admit, think about Protestant Catholic. We've not always treated each other the way that we should have. However, today... The contrast between Christians and these jihadist Muslims could not be clearer. These jihadists get all the media attention because the peaceful Muslims are, frankly, hiding for their lives. They dare not say a word. It is a faith of fear. Now, putting aside the command of the Quran to kill the infidel Christians and Jews, the back-and-forth retaliation between Muslim sects is a perfect example of the chaos of uncontrolled personal vengeance without the lex talionis. Okay, let's move on now to what the scribes and the Pharisees did to mess up the lex talionis. Um, This is what Jesus addresses here they improperly extended the lex talionis beyond the courts to personal relationships to justify personal revenge. And this all despite the teaching, which I think is on your, your, uh, uh, your, your handout there in, in Leviticus 19, which says explicitly, you shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your own people. Therefore, the scribes and Pharisees were using an eye for an eye as an excuse for the very thing it was meant to restrain. Personal vengeance. They turned first a negative injunction into a positive one. Instead of don't take personal revenge, they said you have a right and an obligation to take revenge. Secondly, the scribes and Pharisees believed that uh, they should take revenge themselves and taught others to take revenge with subjective personal judges' judgment. What I believe my offender deserves. Rather than following the spirit of the law of God as given to Moses, it was this legalistic misapplication of the scribes and Pharisees that focused on their rights and revenge. That's the context in which Jesus is speaking here. Without objective judgment, a determination of guilt or innocence, and then proportionate punishment, that is, just rep- retribution with a goal of restoration by a judge who does not have a personal interest in the outcome, we end up with people taking law into their own hands, escalating revenge, chaos, and injustice. Second bunny trail. Uh, What happens when people take the law into their own hands? Well, we've had some incidents recently that give us an idea whether it's Robert Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin, or the the, the stuff that's gone on in Ferguson, Missouri, now some other places, uh, uh, quite a few lately. Now let me just try to be clear here. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Is there racism in the United States? Are some policemen racist? Are some whites racist? Some blacks racist? Some Hispanics racist? Yes, 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 and yes. Is everybody racist? Come on. No, but you think that we all are. Um, But here's the issue. How can we in Topeka or the people on the streets of Ferguson or any other town where a policeman may shoot and kill a person of a different race no better than the people who considered all the evidence? Okay, you understand the problem? A finding of not guilty of some of these policemen, and I think some are going to be convicted here before too long based on what I'm seeing, but I don't know. I don't know all the facts. But a finding of not guilty of somebody is not a finding that there is no, no racism. It's just in that particular case, based upon all the evidence that comes in, that's what was found by the people, the judge or the jury, looking at all those things. Now, in America, we have the right, thankfully, freedom of speech, to protest peacefully. Martin Luther King did this effectively. Uh, And I am sure that many in Ferguson are peaceful. But when people take the law into their own hands, we end up with chaos, looting, burning, usually of minority businesses. Uh, And now the shooting of police, that's the legacy, unfortunately, of Ferguson of taking the law into one's own hands. You know, I hate to talk about race at all. I mean, aren't we all the same blood? Don't we all descend from Adam and Noah? Who cares? Unfortunately, a lot of people think it's important. We're going to move on now to the purpose and the meaning of Jesus in his response to the scribes and Pharisees. We're going to start with some principles of interpretation here. The Sermon on the Mount, we've got to understand as a whole, is not a set of rules or laws to replace the Old Testament. Its focus is to clarify and teach us the spirit of the law. We do not find a detail, but rather a general guide here. If Christians are under grace, why do we seek more law to be applied mechanically? Secondly, if in interpreting a passage of Scripture, uh, we make Jesus' words come to a ridiculous conclusion or an impossible one, we can be sure we have the wrong interpretation. Finally, if an interpretation of a general teaching in Scripture contradicts the plain and obvious teaching of other scriptures, we know we're off base. Okay? Unfortunately, some people, including some very, very famous people, have done just that. Okay. Uh, In, uh, Jesus Christ says in the King James Version that we should resist not evil. What does that not mean? Some often well-meaning people will take these words of Jesus and interpret them to mean things which make no sense. Some of these people, as I've said, are famous and have done some very good things. One example is Leo Tolstoy, okay? 19th century Russian novelist. He wrote War and Peace, gifted guy, and he was a social reformer at the time. And in 1884, Tolstoy determined that the church had misinterpreted this phrase, resist not evil, for the previous 1,800 years. His interpretation was that Jesus prohibits the establishment of courts, military, and police because they all resist evil and sometimes even return evil for evil. Tolstoy argued, and I think this is quote is on your sheet there, quote, Even the so-called criminals and robbers love good and hate evil as I do. And when Christ's commands are finally obeyed, quote, all men will be brothers and everyone will be at peace with others. Then the kingdom of God will have come. All right? Now, if Tolstoy was correct, all we've got to do for world peace is get rid of our military, our police, and our justice system. Is everybody okay? What's the word? Is everybody down with that? Huh? Do you think maybe Tolstoy forgot a little something called sin? Maybe? Another example from the peace movement is a man named Mahatma Gandhi of India. Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount, and he read Tolstoy, and he concluded that even passive resistance and civil disobedience were too negative, too defiant. So during World War II, he stated that if the Japanese were to invade India, he would not resist. He went further. He said the Jews should not resist the Nazis. And he even pleaded with Britain not to fight against the Germans so that the Germans could learn peaceful ways. Uh, As humble and as sincere a man as he was, how long do you think Gandhi would have survived in the Russia of, say, 1925? or the Germany of the 1930s or the Islamic State of 2015. In our uh, high school class, Christian and I uh, with uh, the high schoolers have gone over the concept of reductio ad absurdum, reducing an argument to an absurd conclusion. And the example given was one of my heroes. Mother Teresa, one of the most famous examples of both service and moral courage in our time. This little woman selflessly has served the least of these in Calcutta for decades before her death. My favorite story is an address that Mother Teresa gave to the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington in 1994. Uh, And uh, she... uh, she talked about there the encounter between Jesus and John the Baptist when both of them were in their mother's wombs. And she went on, the Weekly Standard uh, records, Mother Teresa next spoke of love, of selfishness, and a lack of love for the unborn and a lack of want of the unborn because of this selfishness. Then the gentle sister made this elite group uncomfortable. Quote, This is Sister Teresa. But I feel that the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion. Because Jesus said, if you receive a little child, you receive me. So every abortion is the denial of receiving Jesus. Now, what made everybody uncomfortable? Well, there at the head table uh, with the good mother uh, were the pro-abortion president, Bill and Hillary Clinton. Yes, that's who was the president at the time. Uh, Some of you didn't get that. This little old hunchback lady had the courage, after the breakfast is over, to physically pursue Hillary Clinton and challenge her on her pro-abortion stand. This lady had guts. However, having moral or spiritual courage does not mean that you always understand and interpret and correctly apply God's Word. When the state of California sentenced or condemned a horrible double murderer to death, Mother Teresa appealed to the governor of California to commute the sentence to life imprisonment. Why? Mother Teresa said, Because Jesus would forgive. Okay? So if we reduce this rationale to its logical conclusion, we have to accept as true for the sake of argument. Of course, we all believe that Jesus forgives the repentant sinner, but her statement was that because Jesus forgives, the state must forgive also. But that leads to the conclusion that forgiveness means there is no death penalty, but even further, if forgiveness is as from Jesus, that means Complete, doesn't it? So if we apply the logic that Mother Teresa tried to to apply here, there would not be any imprisonment or any punishment at all. After all, one could argue, if murderers like Moses and David and Barabbas and Paul can receive forgiveness and the punishment of hell and go to heaven, how can the state punish that same person at all? But if we remember that man can only judge the outside and cannot judge the heart, then the logical conclusion would be that no criminal who claimed repentance would ever face any consequence. So is it okay if we give murderers and child rapists a get-out-of-jail-free card? What do you think, moms? We're not saying that a repentant murderer won't go to heaven. What we are saying is that when the state carries out its duties responsibly, they just might go a little earlier. You get the point. When good people like Tolstoy, Gandhi, and Mother Teresa misinterpret the words of Jesus, it's not hard to understand why a lot of people do. When you carry out their positions to their consistently logical conclusions, you end up reducing them to absurdity and so you know you're wrong but the thinking believers disagreement with these three is not primarily that their interpretation is unrealistic and even illogical even though they are but rather that these interpretations are not biblical Uh, if we look at Proverbs 24 it says starting in verse 23 to show partiality in judging is not good Whoever says to the guilty, you are innocent, will be cursed by peoples and denounced by nations, but it will go well for those who convict the guilty and rich blessing will come on them. Paul tells us in Romans 13 that the state is instituted by God for the purpose of both to punish and to resist the evil ones, to make them bear the penalty of that evil and to reward those who do good. Now, there is a place for mercy. But it is to be given by the judge or the jury who knows the facts and the the circumstances and who can best determine the attitude of the offender. At the same time, we've got to recognize that there is a practical problem. Government is made up of people. And that means it's made up of sinners. Sinners. Therefore, Paul in no way justifies all that government does beyond that role, whether it's ethnic cleansing, shooting people in the back, kicking them while they're down, sectarian revenge, or the violence perpetrated with billy clubs during the bloody Sunday march in Selma, Alabama almost 50 years ago. Still, when the government exercises its God-ordained purpose justly to punish evil, it is in God's words. The government is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Another issue, again, you may not think of it much these days, but it came up a lot in my, my youth, is given the words of Jesus, should nations or Christians engage in war? There have, been, there have always been many people, including Christians, who have opposed all wars, but you know, it, in our era, it kind of seemed insignificant. You know, World War I, World War II, and even the Korean conflict, you know, because of the evils that we were addressing. But then in the 60s, along came Vietnam, uh, a war that was first unconventional. In other words, the enemy was oftentimes indistinguishable from the local populace. It was fought in jungles. We We weren't used to that. Secondly, it was a generally unpopular war. It was declared by Lyndon Johnson, a president who was, first of all, a politician with serious domestic problems. Some believe that Johnson intentionally engaged in this war to prop up a sagging economy by, by ginning up the military-industrial complex. Older folks remember that term. Uh, and, uh, and to take public attention away from his problems at home. And finally, this was the first time that the horrible realities of war were brought into the living rooms of people on the nightly news. It wasn't current as we see today, but we got to see what was really happening over there, including the reports of some atrocities by U.S. troops. The backlash was the anti-war or peace movement. Protests, flag burnings, draft dodging. uh, There were no parades, but rather disrespect and disdain for the wounded servicemen who returned from Vietnam. All of this in the overall milieu, the overall scene of the civil rights movement, the, 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 the women's rights movement, uh, marijuana, other mind-altering drugs became prevalent, the sexual revolution, the legalization of abortion, all, all occurring at the same time. It was a wild and crazy time. People on this issue were divided into hawks and doves. And some Christians joined in to become what we call sometimes peaceniks. Uh, religious conscientious objection to war became a way to avoid the draft and being shipped off to that horrible southeastern country. Now, of course, the aversion to war continues to today. And war truly is a terrible thing. Thomas Aquinas tried to give us guidelines for a just war but the precision that we require of policemen is pretty difficult to apply in the, the confusion and the fog of war. You know, some would argue that the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which ended World War II in the Pacific Theater, uh, was not just due to the loss of all that noncombatant life. On the other hand, when you consider the alternative, which would have been an amphibious assault on Japan, uh, Uh, city to city, house to house, hand to hand combat throughout the whole country against an enemy who had a very different mindset than the Germans did in Europe. You see, the Japanese did not have surrender in their vocabulary. And they had no problems committing suicide, Harry Carey, by flying their planes into our ships at sea. We face a similar mindset in the Islamic jihadists today who will die for their faith and the eternal reward to kill infidels like you and me. There are no easy answers in war. However, as much as we would like to avoid it, there there has always been and there will continue to be war. But the problems of opposing war based on the words of Jesus are, first of all, in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to go to war, and he either granted or withheld his blessing based upon whether they carried out the mission or not. We also have to remember the context here. Jesus is speaking to individuals here, not to nations. Clearly, the state or rulers have a different function, including the resistance of evil, which we see in Romans 13. Now, for you and me, there can be tension in these roles that we all play because those that believe in Christ as their Savior, as Christians, are also citizens of the state. And there are times when we hold offices within the state, such as a policeman or a judge or the military or other officials. An example is that uh, Gary Davenport resists evil when he keeps those tractor trailers with three trailers you know that are waving down the highway from cutting corners and and creating danger for you and I, uh, Bill Bider resists evil for people who would dump their trash on your property or maybe dump tires into the river uh, yeah that 's all resistance of evil the uh, This tension is somewhat addressed by Martin Luther who made a distinction between person and office now Luther took the distinction too far but it's helpful to understand our place as a, as christian citizens the christian as a person is to be free from revenge in action and in heart romans 12 says this, in summary do not repay anyone evil for evil live at peace with all men do not take revenge Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Okay? As an office holder. Christians may find themselves entrusted with a duty and an authority as a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. Finally, in another context, if none of us are to resist evil, then church leaders could not protect their flocks from evil within. Acts 20 says that elders are to be on guard for yourself and for all your flock against savage wolves who come in among you. Church discipline is at its core the resistance of evil within the body. Okay. What or who are we not to resist? Above all, we should know that we do not resist God, His will, or His truth. We are also not to resist civil authority, that's what Romans 13 tells us, which is the state, except for the biblical biblical civil disobedience when the state commands me to disobey God. That's when I don't submit. However, you know, we're, we are told, all of us, to resist the devil. How can we resist the devil yet not resist evil? I do not think that Matthew 5 can be, can be logically, logically construed to that we are to compromise with Satan. The Greek here for evil is in the masculine, not the neuter. I know this is technical. Therefore, the thing that we resist is a who, not a what. It is the man who is evil, or the one who wrongs us. In other words, when one wrongs me, I am not to retaliate. Okay? Uh, In Matthew 5, Jesus does not contradict the lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Rather, he affirms that it still applies. However, it is to be carried out by civil authorities, by the courts, not by personal justice or revenge. So it does not apply to personal relationships. We see this in the command in in verse 39. Slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Uh, Now, that brings up the question, what about serious bodily attack? Uh, I'm sure some would disagree, but let's start with defense of others. All you got to do here is turn to your wife and your kids and say, uh, it says, uh, you know, I'm not to resist evil if, I, if uh, you know, they slap me on one cheek, I turn the other. Is it okay if I turn your cheek as well? If somebody's after you with a gun or a knife, is that okay with you, wife? Is that okay with you, children? Again, in Proverbs 29, it says, if you falter in the time of trouble, how small is your strength rescue those being led away to death hold back those staggering towards slaughter if you say we knew nothing about this does not he who weighs the heart perceive it does not he he who guards your life know it will he not repay everyone according to what they have done i think we have an obligation to protect others and you know the people in the peace churches who misinterpret this passage i think by and large are all pro life but being pro life is resisting evil and this is a perfect passage to address that. What about defense of self? Maybe there's a distinction there. You know, I believe the passage does not say that we are to lay down and tell people it's okay to shoot us and stab us. I just don't believe that. that would, this is another case of reductio ad absurdum. You know, there are several times in Scripture when the apostles and Jesus himself, they were threatened physically they didn't lay down. They escaped. Uh, and think about the, the wording here. Striking one on the right cheek. Most people are right-handed. What that means is it's a backslap to the person standing across from me, right? Make sense? That in their culture at that time, even to today in the Middle East, is a huge insult, okay? It uh, doesn't talk about harm, uh, That's what it is. Now, assault with a deadly weapon is a little different, don't you think? Uh, So if I were, I believe that we're not prohibited from preventing that assault. However, I do not believe that the passage gives us permission to carry out justice in our response. An attacker may deserve punishment. A Christian cannot intentionally, however, take the step to carry out the penalty deserved. May protect oneself, but not further. This is the whole concept in the law of reasonable and necessary force that's developed. We don't carry out the maximum. We just do what's necessary to protect. So to summarize here, uh, I want to get down to the main points that hopefully you can take away. And then next month, again, Lord willing, we'll talk about what this does mean. We have seen that the command to resist not evil is not for nations or for unbelievers. Instead, if you take this in context, Jesus is telling the people he describes in the Beatitudes, uh, the way in which they are to live their lives. These folks are those who are poor in spirit. They're the merciful. They're those who mourn over sin. There's the meek. These are the people who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness and so on. Christ does not ask, the natural man under the control of sin and Satan, to live like this, much less whole nations. For nations and unbelievers, the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, still applies in order to restrain excesses and maintain law and order. The New Testament teaches that until one comes under grace, he must be kept under that law. A believer must encourage law and order and never shirk his duty as a citizen to keep crime and violence to a minimum and defend against aggression. A Christian under God's grace is held to a higher standard, though, the spirit of the law through the spirit of Christ. In short, this passage has nothing to do with the things that some people say it does. This passage addresses believers and nobody else. This application is further limited to a believer's personal relationship to his family, friends, and others, not relationships as a citizen or his relationship to the state. Those concerned with how to relate to the state should look elsewhere, like Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, not here. One does not find any justification to refuse to serve or even fight in the military in Jesus' word here or, I believe, anywhere else. This passage, finally, has nothing to do with the taking of life, capital punishment, war, or pacifism. I know this may be totally contrary to what you've always been taught, uh, but that's my honest assessment. I do not say that if you are a member or you have family who's members of these peace churches, the Amish, the Mennonite, Quakers, or friends, that they cannot live out what Jesus teaches. However, their teaching on this subject can cloud their view on the real intent of Jesus' teaching, which I believe is totally consistent with their other views. This passage is only about the individual's believer's personal response to things that happen to us. The scribes and Pharisees interpreted an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in a purely legalistic manner, something physical. When people reduce Jesus' teaching to a question of capital punishment, or non-resistance, pacifism, or war, you're really doing the same thing. Again, uh, we want to go into our positive teaching next month um, for each one of us. Before then, I'd encourage you to look at this passage and try to see the common thread. Try to see what Jesus is telling us because it does say something directly to everyone who calls himself a Christ follower. Father, we just give all praise and glory to you. Uh, we desire to understand your word and to apply it correctly in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would be with each and every one of these believers here, that you would give us discernment, that you would help us not to avoid passages, but to address them directly and to apply them, understanding, and to help others understand what you were teaching in this passage. Father, thank you for the privilege we have to be here. Thank you for the freedoms that we experience here. Thank you for our land, which is still much more free than most other lands in this world. Uh, We just pray, Lord, that you would not allow that freedom to make us apathetic, but rather help us to understand that we must be active, salt, and light within our world. We give you all praise and glory. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.